welcome to The Signal. I'm Avery Mullen. And I'm Michael Schups. We're with the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. Today on the show, how Uber is affecting a Halifax cab company. And a story about a friendship that provides help and support for a blind woman in ways her guide dog can't. And my Lewis, my guide dog, who clearly cannot read my mail and tell me anything about what outfit I'm wearing. <laughs> Plus later, a homeless shelter in Halifax is getting some decorative touches to make people feel more at home. I think it's a good way to say to residents that we care about you and we respect you. And we have an interview with the editor of a new publication that features student journalism in Canada. All that and more is ahead on today's show. But first, Black History Month started this week. It takes on added relevance at a time when the Black Lives Matter movement is being countered by far-right protesters both in the U.S. and in Canada. Now, two university professors in Halifax are trying something different to bridge the gaps in cultural misunderstanding. They've created a judgment-free zone for white people to ask questions about race. Josh Hoffman reports. Thanks very much for this question. I think it's a great one for us to get started with. It's the sixth edition of Safe Space for White Questions. The monthly online drop-in sessions were started last year by Dalhousie professor Ajay Parsram and Mount St. Vincent prof Alex Kosnabish. Parsram, whose background is South Asian and Caribbean, says the two used to commiserate together about the lack of progress in racial equality. What if we just made a space where people who had these questions, lots of different questions, didn't understand something, didn't feel comfortable asking a question in public, if they could just turn up and just ask a couple of questions. Paris Ram says they have received some overtly racist questions, but overall there haven't been many problems. Unlike an online event for black medical students at Dalhousie University last month, it was interrupted by a coordinated attack by a group of people making racist and homophobic comments. Paris Ram hopes their online sessions will enable white people to talk with racist family members and friends and possibly prevent some people from falling victim to misinformation and hate. We needed to create accessible kind of YouTube videos so that folks who are kind of at risk of going down that kind of white nationalist rabbit hole had some ability to like get a different kind of perspective. Sociologist Robert Wright says if real change is going to happen, white people need to do more than talk. He says they are the ones in positions of power and privilege who can help eliminate barriers. The challenge is, in order to be a real ally, you have to take space when appropriate and give space when appropriate. Wright says ultimately white people must confront issues of race outside the comfort of a safe space. He says it's like learning a second language. You just have to be willing to be bad at it for a while. You're going to make lots of mistakes. The people who speak it fluently are going to correct you. You're go it's going to be uncomfortable. But if you can get comfortable with speaking the language poorly, eventually you'll be completely fluent and all that hard work will pay off. Both Wright and Parsram pointed out the irony of creating safe spaces for white people. Wright says they should be critical about why they need to feel comfortable when learning about the suffering of others. For The Signal, I'm Josh Hoffman. It's pretty warm for February, but even three degrees is chilly if you don't have a place to sleep at night. Many in Halifax's homeless population rely on shelters, and while they may be a good place to find a bed, they're not always very cozy or welcoming. One shelter is trying to change that. Nicholas Sagan explains. 
People donated beautiful wall hangings and old maps and paintings people did themselves and even pieces they made. Chloe Budd is the coordinator of Halifax's Out of the Cold Emergency Shelter. In January, she put out a call for donations of plants and art. It was an attempt to make the shelter feel more like home for the people who stay there. If you think about how the state of your home impacts your mental health, it's definitely significant. I think it's a good way to say to residents that we care about you and we respect you. She says anyone can stay at the shelter. Any gender, people who are using, people who may be banned from other shelters. We always try to focus on the fact that everyone deserves a warm place to sleep and food on their plate, but it's also important to note that people deserve these things with dignity. Dr. Jeff Carabino is the Associate Director of the School of Social Work at Dalhousie University. He's one of the founding members of the Out of the Cold Shelter. He says small things most of us take for granted can be huge for people using shelters. You know, plants, art, these are normal pieces of home life. You can start to mimic that a bit. That can only help in people feeling a sense of being human again. Bud says the shelter is now full of beautiful donations, and the residents are really enjoying the new atmosphere. But she says the real answer is helping people find a permanent home. In the future, we would like to be somewhere that provides supported housing instead of just shelter, because shelters are definitely like a band-aid solution. She says that takes money, cash donations. Carabino says until people experiencing homelessness get housing, it's very difficult to deal with any underlying issues like trauma, addiction, or mental health. People feel better when they can call a place their own and they can look around and see it as a space for human living. But for now, the employees of the shelter just want to make the space the most caring, secure, and human place it can be. For The Signal, I'm Nicholas Sagan. With Uber now open for business in Halifax, taxi companies may have a good reason to be nervous about competition. Avery, you've been talking to people in that industry this week, right? I have indeed. And Michael, it turns out not everyone is panicking. Ali Roshani drives a taxi in Halifax. Business was already slow. Often, he only got a handful of customers a day. So when Uber arrived in the market last month, he was not happy. He says there were already too many taxis in town, particularly since the city created more than 600 new taxi licenses in 2019. So, he doesn't think Uber will make enough money to stay the course. To be honest, I don't expect Uber to be around. I know they're going to go. But at least one taxi company has spent a lot of time preparing for the competition. We kind of knew that Uber was going to come to Halifax. We knew that it was an inevitability. Brian Herman is the third generation of his family to run Casino Taxi. His grandfather founded the company in the 50s. Maybe that's why he saw the arrival of Uber in Halifax coming earlier than most. In 2014, when the rideshare industry was still new, he spearheaded his company's switch to app-based ride bookings. Then, he launched a years-long Facebook and Instagram ad campaign highlighting and humanizing Casino's drivers. And the company campaigned for those extra 600 taxi licenses which Herman says allow customers to receive faster service from cabs. The result? Well, it might be too early to call. But so far, Herman isn't too worried. The way we see it affecting us right now is in, in small increments. There's a very small handful of bookings uh, that are going, um, that we're, we believe that we're missing on an hourly basis. For now, Herman is staying the course, hoping that his company's preparation will trump Uber's cheaper fares.
Thanks for that report, Avery. No problem. When the lockdown happened last year, a lot of people felt isolated. You couldn't go see your friends or hit the pub, and for people who are blind or partially sighted, it was even more isolating. The Vision Mates program from the CNIB existed long before the pandemic, but this past year has become even more critical. Preet Bogle has more. So I said, okay, I'll take one. <laughs> Melinda Kazanavichis and Elena Stockwell remember one grocery shopping trip when chicken was on sale. She puts nine in. <laughs> the two friends met about five years ago through the Vision Mates program at the CNIB. The program matches up volunteers like Stockwell with someone with sight loss, like Kazanavichis, to provide some help for a few hours a week. I can do everything independently myself, but if I was going to go to the post office and to the grocery store and then to the third destination, it would take me the whole morning to do so, whereas with Elena, we can get it done within two hours. Kazanavichus has a guide dog who can easily guide her where she needs to go, but... And my Lewis, my guide dog, who clearly cannot read my mail and tell me anything about what outfit I'm wearing. (laughs) And guide dogs don't know about social distancing or following arrows on the floor. Jeff DeViller is with the CNIB. They're there effectively to empower the person. They're not there to do things for them. COVID has complicated things for everyone, but for those who are blind or partially sighted, it's even worse. There's your friend across the street. You're not allowed to touch. At least you can wave and smile at each other. And when you can't see that smile or you can't feel that hug or have that hand, it you know, I, right now I almost feel like crying. And that's why the Vision Mates program has been critical during the pandemic. It currently has over 80 volunteers and offers virtual visits and grocery delivery. Um, certainly there are matches that are entirely pragmatic and are solely about like, we're going to help you with reading and going for walks or whatever the case may be. But so many of them turn into friendships. Kaz and and Stockwell would definitely call themselves friends. I mean, and Elena is an intricate part of my life. The only thing I can't get her to do with me is go camping, but but she's all about the hotel. <laughs> For The Signal, I'm Preet Bogle. You're listening to The Signal on CKDU 88.1 FM in Halifax and at SignalHFX on Twitter. We're bringing you stories from the audio workshop at the University of King's College School of Journalism. I'm Avery Mullen. And I'm Michael Chubbs. Still to come on the show, Neptune Theatre prepares for a command performance before the city's Audit and Finance Committee in a plea for money. You're you're sort of ripping out the heart of what makes us human, which, you know, essentially is sharing, connecting and telling stories. And we'll hear about a ramped up program to get more people sampling Halifax restaurants this month at a time when they've never needed the business more. Plus, we'll have our guide to what's up around town this week. Michael, people might not realize it, but we're doing this audio workshop completely online, working from home. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm doing the King's program from my home in St. John's, Newfoundland. It's really changed how students learn. I've been looking into that actually this week, and I found that the pandemic puts vulnerable students at an academic disadvantage. Here's my report. Today, I had to move around like three or four interviews because I can't I can simply not stay up until three in the morning to interview people for this project. Kaylee Patrick is a second year student at Memorial University. She is living in Izmir, a city on the west coast of Turkey. She says her grades have suffered as a result of a six and a half hour time difference that leaves her out of sync with her classmates. And Kaylee has another issue she finds especially difficult to shake. Earthquakes. 
last week, for example, we had a 5.2 magnitude earthquake and it knocked my internet out and I missed my entire class. And that class, 20% of my grade is made up of my participation. Kaylee says it would be easier for her if her prof would just record his lectures so she could watch them anytime when her Wi-Fi is actually working. Noelle Biderot agrees. She's a fourth year month student with ADHD. She's also the mother of a three-year-old daughter. Now she says focusing on her studies at home can be really challenging. Having ADHD, I really need to be in an environment to properly learn that doesn't have a lot of distractions in it. And I mean, I'm here sitting at my kitchen table trying to pay attention to my live lectures and I mean, I'm surrounded by toys and dishes and laundry. I mean, it's just not an ideal learning environment. And I know that I'm struggling, but I'm not the only one. She says professors that record lectures make it easier for her to learn because she can review the information again. Daniel Stid is an international student living in Newfoundland. He started a petition encouraging Munn to make professors record their lectures. And he says the fix is simple, but doing nothing means leaving some students behind. If they say no, they're, they're not just turning their backs on their international community, but they're also turning their backs on indigenous people and people that live in rural communities and people that are moms and uh, are taking these courses. Now, Munn's policy acknowledges recorded lectures can be helpful for many students, but Stid's professor has refused to make recordings. Around the region, it's a mixed experience. Dalhousie University has encouraged professors to post online lectures, but in the end, it's up to the individual instructor. Thanks for that, Michael. You're very welcome. Canada's media landscape is changing. It's something we journalism students are keeping an eye on. For years, well-established newsrooms have been making cuts, laying off reporters and other staff members. Right, right. But other media operations are actually growing. Some small digital-first newsrooms are adding staff, even during the pandemic. One of these is The Pigeon. It was started last July by a group of Canadian journalism students and recent graduates. This week, Simon Smith spoke with its managing editor, Tegwin Hughes. Tegwin, thanks for taking the time today. Of course, thank you for having me. For anyone who might be hearing about The Pigeon for the first time, can you tell me a little bit more about it? The Pigeon is a fairly new Canadian publication. We launched in July 2020. It is a long-form publication focused on Canada-wide topics. What really makes us unique is that we're run entirely by Canadian student journalists and graduates. We saw a real need for more hands-on, experience-based resources for emerging journalists in Canada. It's really hard to make that leap from a student publication or even just journalism school or having an interest in writing to your first big byline. So although on the surface we function as a regular digital publication, we publish really awesome stories two or three times a week. Behind the scenes, we're also working with our contributors to show them what the editorial or freelancing process is like in Canada, especially for a digital long-form publication, which is hard to get experience in. And so we work with a lot of people who have never had a byline before, but we really take the time with them to polish their work. And at the end of the day, we are seeing stories from these quote-unquote inexperienced contributors that are tackling issues that legacy publications have not really addressed. So it's been really exciting getting where we are today. I think we still have a lot of growing to do. 
but it's been such a fun ride since July. Yeah, and I want to talk a little bit more about some of those issues that you just mentioned that make it important for student journalists and young journalists to have that platform. There's not only a lot of diversity there, but a lot of in-depth looks at, at topics that maybe you've only seen news coverage about. Personally, you can see from my author profile, despite being an editor, I write way too much for The Pigeon as well. I focus on reproductive health issues, and and that is a topic that is entirely underrepresented in Canada. And so, especially from a long-form perspective, as a young journalist myself, having the freedom with this platform to be able to write about topics like midwifery, pregnancy, abortion, contraceptive care, I don't see other publications taking a look at those topics from a long-form format. So that's personally where I think I've benefited. But even just looking at our home page, we're seeing stories about folks with housing insecurity, stories about agriculture, virtual therapy, um, the alt-right. We're seeing stories about old growth logging, Inuit art. We did a special project I'm really proud of in November that was entirely about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and its calls to action. And we spoke to a lot of Indigenous activists, educators, about where the gaps were in those calls to action and and what has and hasn't changed. So you can see just from scrolling through our first page that you might not see those topics in the news section of the Globe and Mail. And those topics are being written about by, you know, people in their late teens and 20s. Mm-hmm. So The Pigeon has published a few articles recently about the challenges facing young journalists, and you've touched on this a little bit already, but can you talk about some of those challenges? I'm a female journalist, but I'm also white, so I don't, you know, pertain to speak for the journalists of color I've worked with. However, from what I've heard and from what a lot of young journalists in Canada have been brave enough to speak out about, in the industry for young journalists in Canada, there really are a lot of barriers to not only being published, but being trusted, being encouraged, being mentored when you are, you know, a young woman or a person of color um, or an LGBTQ journalist. And so not only are we seeing a lack of opportunities, but we're seeing a lot of imposter syndrome with young journalists because those systemic barriers have pushed a sense of inferiority on young marginalized journalists. And I see a lot of the times with my contributors who maybe are in their fourth year of journalism school, have had other bylines or just have really awesome ideas that they're still feeling really hesitant to pitch a publication like mine that's as approachable as it can be, let alone pitching an established publication that might not have a mandate to be approachable to young journalists. Mm-hmm. Can you describe the role that you expect student journalists and young journalists to play in covering Canada's most pressing issues going forward? I have no expectations for student journalists, but I'm seeing them already take such an amazing step in championing a lot of issues within our journalism industry. We're seeing student journalists do more than a lot of established publications. Student papers like the UBC and like the Eye Opener have been ahead of the game for three or four years when it comes to things that established publications have been implementing the past few months, when it comes to covering issues of marginalization, when it comes to 
having a representative newsroom. Student journalists are already doing it and are already having those conversations. I'm seeing a lot of people growing in confidence. And, and as someone who's kind of cheering from the sidelines, I'm really excited to see what comes next. And I hope that career journalists look at what's happening and, and maybe listen a bit more to what younger journalists have to say. Tegman, thanks so much. Thank you again for having me. It was a blast. That's The Signal's Simon Smith speaking with Tegwin Hughes, managing editor of The Pigeon. Neptune Theatre's staff is asking the municipality for financial help to keep things going until they can reopen for in-person shows. Neptune's artistic director, Jeremy Webb, hopes that councillors will see that the theatre plays a crucial role in Halifax's economy. Anastasia Payne caught up with him this week. You're just going to turn to your left, follow me. Oh, wait, I've got a flashlight. Neptune Theatre is hauntingly quiet these days. It's been struggling since the pandemic shut it down on March 13th last year. Jeremy Webb is the theater's artistic director. He says donors, provincial relief, and other fundraising activities have helped, but not enough. So then we're like, okay, we've got $30,000. What bills need to be paid? Who needs to be paid? Who needs to, you know, and it's literally going hand to mouth um, through the year. Webb says they're not asking for a bailout, just for more money than the government-funded nonprofit would normally get in a year. $100,000 more. He says the theater plays a vital role in Halifax's economy. Lil McPherson agrees. She's the president and co-owner of The Wooden Monkey. The more art, the more music, the more our city is thriving, the more taxes, the more social programs. That's how how I see. It's a full circle. The theater contributes over $7 million to Halifax's economy every year. And for every Neptune Theater ticket bought, $41 is spent at local businesses. That's according to a 2015 economic impact study. Right now, public health rules say the theater can have up to 60 people rehearse plays without social distancing, but they still can't hold any in-person shows. Just across the street at East of Grafton, general manager Alicia Williams says they're feeling the effects of Neptune's struggle. The restaurant and bar partners with Neptune to offer dinner packages and discounts to theater goers. Neptune has a huge impact on us, so we're hoping that they can get all the support that they need to reopen again so that we can have those couple hours of really steady traffic before the show. Webb says it's not just about the money either. If you remove that, uh, not only do you take away an industry that actually generates a significant revenue for the city, the province, the country, but you're also, you're you're sort of ripping out the heart of what makes us human, which, you know, essentially is sharing, connecting and telling stories. Neptune will present its request to city councillors next Wednesday. For The Signal, I'm Anastasia Payne. Restaurants have had to adapt to public health restrictions and changing consumer habits amid the pandemic. Now, a promotion is underway to help them regain some lost ground. Raghu Para has more. Michael Roberts says it's more important than ever for restaurants to find new ways to reach out to customers and attract sales. And, uh, you know, this year is definitely a little different where we're, we're you know, focusing on takeout as well. Um, consumer confidence still isn't 100%, so um, some people aren't comfortable coming out. Roberts manages restaurant operations at Murphy Hospitality Group. He says restaurants participating in the Dine Around Halifax program will creatively package existing menus at affordable prices. You know, you're, you're showcasing your restaurant, but you're doing it at a better price point. So it's, uh, 
it's more attractive. Murphy Hospitality Group is among more than 100 partners signing up for the month-long promotional campaign. Natasha Chestnut is the marketing administrator at the Restaurant Association of Nova Scotia. She says the program has run every February for 18 years. We had chosen February because that tends to be a slower time of year for the restaurant. She says foodies can dine in or take out for less. It's a lot of opportunity to try, you know, different things at a, at a reasonable reasonable price. So. And Chestnut says more restaurants have signed up than ever before. According to the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University, a third of Canadians have either used takeout or delivery services at restaurants since the pandemic. Okay. Meanwhile, Robert says Dine Around Halifax is more than partnering with food delivery partners. He says it's more affordable and is all about creativity. With Skip the Dishes, I mean, it, it, it's a whole different ball game. It, for them, it, it's all about volume and just pumping food out to their guests. Whereas with um, you know, Dine Around, it, it's... You know, we're creating experiences for our guests. He says the Dine Around program can let him control his customers' experience and make sure they enjoy what's offered. For The Signal, I'm Raghu Para. Say, Avery, have you seen anything good on Netflix lately? I can't say I have, Michael. Hmm. Well, if you're looking for something to put on this evening, Alex Johnson knows some films that Carbon Arc Cinema has out for streaming. That's all part of this week's What's Up. Right now, Carbon Arc is showing two award-winning films that you can stream at home. One of the films is You Will Die at 20. The film tells the story of Muzamil. When he is born, a sheik predicts that he will die at 20 years old. The prophecy hangs over Muzamil's head as he grows up and comes to terms with death. This film by Amjad Abu Alala is the first Sudanese film submitted to the Oscars. You can stream it from carbonarc.ca for $10. It's available until February 18th. If you'd like to get out of the house, the Craig Gallery at Alderney Landing has a new exhibit from Tyson Wright called Mayal. The exhibit features ceremonial objects and instruments sacred to the Jamaican Maroons. They are used in celebrations to connect with ancestors. Wright says on the event's webpage that the Maroons were denied their ceremonial instruments when they were exiled to Nova Scotia in 1796. He hopes that this exhibit will, quote, reconnect Maroon traditions to the Canadian narrative. The exhibit runs until February 28th. And if you're looking for some live music, the outlaw country group, the Jake Duggan Band, will be playing at Beerley's House of Blues and Ribs. That's at 7.30 tomorrow night. And also tomorrow night, the one-man band Jeff Kennedy will be playing at Patron's Bar and Grill in Bedford at 7. And the Nova Scotia Folk and Roots Band, Iron Wheel, is also at Beerley's. That's for a matinee tomorrow at 3.30. Here they are with ripe fruit.
Again, we post links to our stories on Twitter. Our handle is SignalHFX. Thanks to our social media editors, Josh Hoffman and Anastasia Payne. Our technician is Mark Pinio. Our audio professor is Pauline Dakin. I'm Avery Mullen. And I'm Michael Chubbs. We'll be back next week with more stories. Have a great weekend. Be in his favor. And he knows not a damn thing he can do. But it's a very fair and just decision.